chapter 3 this morning. So we'll be looking at the the scripture that Rosa just read for us in Malachi chapter 3. If you're using the Bibles in the seats, I believe that's page 676. Malachi chapter 3. Last week I preached about um, Christianity as a movement and that the ingredients of that movement, as we see in the life of the Apostle Paul, were his message, his mission, his method, and the miraculous. And uh, then I kind of joked that we should throw money in as a fifth M. But I, but I went home and I thought about it, and I thought, you know, we haven't talked about money as a church for a long time, and what better time for a preacher to preach about money when the church doesn't actually have any particularly urgent financial needs? Um, and even better that it's a mission Sunday and our offering today went to missions, not to the CBC budget. One of the best sermons that I ever heard on the topic of money was by a pastor named Daryl Johnson. And why completely reinvent the wheel uh, when, when you have such good material to work with? So I'm going to draw heavily on um, what he had to say this morning. And he's given me permission to do that, but some of it will be my own as well. And so today's text has good news for us. And this is the good news. God cares about our finances. That's right. The creator and the redeemer of the world cares about people's finances. In today's text, the loving God, the living God, the powerful God, through the prophet Malachi, makes two wonderful promises to those under financial stress. And God tells us that these two promises, this good news, become a working reality in our lives when in the face of financial stress, we trust the promise maker by daring to do what he calls us to do in this text. I want to reassure you this morning that in preaching this text, I am not going to ask anyone to give money to this church. Have you got that? (laughs) Tell the person next to you to make sure they've got it. Tell them he's not going to ask you for money. (laughs) Not that I should be ashamed to ask for money. Not that I should be afraid to ask for money. I mean, what greater cause is there to ask anyone to give money to than the work of introducing people to Jesus Christ? and inviting them into the abundant life that Jesus gives. But I assure you that in preaching from the prophet Malachi today, I'm not asking for more funds for CBC. After all, there are many other ministries that you could support which would invest in God's work as well. What I am going to ask from you and from me this morning is more faith. Because that's what this text is calling for. What I'm going to ask from you and from me is more of what the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 calls the obedience of faith. The obedience that comes from faith because we trust in God. That's what this text is calling for. And so what I'm asking from you and me is to trust the great promise maker by doing what he commands us to do. I wonder how the first readers of Malachi's prophecy reacted to his words. I wonder how they reacted when they were told that their problems were due to robbing God. Robbing God? (laughs) Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord. A 
word of grace. Return to me, and I will return to you. How shall we return to you, the people ask. Will a person rob God, answers God, yet you are robbing me. How, ask the people, good question, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, says the Lord. Let me briefly fill in the historical background in which this dialogue takes place. It was during the 5th century before the birth of Jesus Christ, and the Jews had recently returned from Babylon where they had been held in captivity for 70 years. They had at that time resettled in Jerusalem with high hopes back in their homeland. The temple had been rebuilt, and although it didn't have the splendor and the glory of the previous temple that Solomon had made that had been destroyed, it did serve the purpose of reinstituting the the worship life of Israel and binding them together as a nation again. But by the time that this prophetic dialogue in Malachi uh, took place, the people were becoming increasingly disillusioned. Their hopes for prosperity and peace back in their home country were not materializing. Life was very hard. On every side they found hostile nations. There were constant threats uh, of invasion from enemy forces and and they were in the midst of a a severe drought uh, causing crop failures and uh, bad crops and famine. And so the economy was very shaky. The interest rate was off the charts, presumably. And so you can imagine, right, that in, that in such circumstances, the people began to doubt the love of God. You can read about that in chapter 1, verse 2. And like happens to some of us, these circumstances also raised questions about the justice of God. You can read about that in chapter 2, verse 17. It seemed that evildoers were the ones getting ahead in life. And it seemed that the ungodly and the disobedient were the only ones enjoying prosperity. And so many believers were feeling like it simply did no good to do good. In Malachi 3.14, they complain, it is futile to serve the Lord. And into these circumstances, God sends the prophet Malachi with a message. The message was simple and direct, but it was not what the people wanted to hear. Malachi says that the the adversity that they are facing was not due to the lack of God's love or or justice, but rather um, the adversity was due to unfaithfulness on the part of the people. Not unfaithfulness on God's part, but unfaithfulness on the people's part. What? They probably thought. Yes, through Malachi, God says that in that particular situation, the people had no right to call into question the ways of God, claiming that it does no good to do good. Why? Because despite all of their proper religious ritual, they were not in fact doing good. Because they were not exercising faith, they were not actually trusting God, and that lack of faith was showing up in their behavior. So Malachi, like the prophets before him, explains their unfaith an unenviable job. (laughs) I encourage you to read the whole book, four chapters sometimes. It speaks a very relevant word to to many issues in our day. The whole thrust of, of, of this little book is, how can people expect to prosper when they are so utterly faithless? For example, Malachi points to the corrupt worship of the priests in chapter one. The priests were presenting unworthy sacrifices to God on the altar. 
The sacrifices were supposed to be unblemished from the best of the flocks. But the priests were offering sacrifices, which Malachi says would even insult a human leader if they were offered to them. Further, the priests were bored with their duties. They were just going through the motions to collect a paycheck. Malachi also points to the practices of of men divorcing their wives simply in order to marry younger, sexier women or wealthier, better connected women from the foreign nations. That's in chapter 2. They were trying to marry their way out of their financial troubles. Then in the verses right before the dialogue about robbing God we're looking at this morning, in verse 5 of chapter 3, Malachi lists a number of other examples of the people's unfaithfulness. They were consulting sorcerers. They were committing adultery. They were swearing falsely. They were cheating their workers of their just wages. And they were ignoring or oppressing widows and orphans and not caring for the needs of immigrants. Malachi's point? One Old Testament scholar summarizes it well. How could they, the people of Israel, expect to prosper when the country was rotten with such practices? But thankfully... Malachi doesn't leave it there, digging up their sin and calling them on the carpet for it. No, Malachi also comes with a word of grace. He comes with a word from the God of grace. Return to me, and I will return to you. God wants to be in a relationship with his people. God wants his people, his covenant people, to enjoy his goodness and his peace. God does not delight in their trouble. God wants the best for them. So God calls out, return to me, and I will return to you. And in reply, the people ask the obvious question, how shall we return to you? How shall we express our desire to to know you and to be your people? How shall we demonstrate to you that we take you seriously? And God answers their question with a question and an accusation. Question, will a person rob God? Accusation, yet you are robbing me. What? We, mere human beings, rob God? How could we rob God? So they ask him, how are we robbing you? Then God gives his concrete answer in tithes and offerings. You are robbing me by not bringing to me the whole tithe. Now the word tithe simply means a tenth part. To tithe means to give to God and the work of his kingdom a tenth, the first tenth of the seeds and crops and flocks, and paychecks. Why? Because the first tenth is God's. It belongs to God. Actually, it's all God's. If we don't realize that now, we'll realize it when we die. It's all God's. But the first tenth is especially God's. You are robbing me, God says, by not bringing in the whole tithe, the whole 10%. Giving the tithe was was part of the faith of the people of God right from the beginning. Abraham, for instance, the the first father of the faith, was was, uh, after he uh, defeated um, the the king of Elam and some other kings, he, he came back from that battle and he gave a tenth of the plunder that he gained to Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God. You can read about that in Genesis 14 and Hebrews 7. And Jacob, his, uh, Abraham's grandson, after he had a dream about God's future blessing on him and his family, he covenanted with God to give God the first 10% of all he would receive from God. 
You can read about that in Genesis 28. Then later, when God gave Moses the law, spelling out the covenantal responsibilities for God's people, God commanded every family among his people to give 10% of their seeds, crops, and herds to God. You can read about that in Leviticus 27, Deuteronomy 14, and Numbers 18. It is holy to the Lord, say those texts. That is, it is claimed by God, set apart by God, set apart for God. The first tenth is God's. All right, some more background. In Old Testament times, this tithe was not paid all at once, but throughout the year. It was presented in portions at the three major Jewish festivals, the Passover, the Pentecost, or weeks, and the Tabernacles, the Sukkot. At the feasts, the worshipers would present their basket of first fruits, which represented their whole tithe, to the priests, and the priests would lay them on the altar, and then the worshipers would pray this prayer recorded in Deuteronomy 26, 5 to 10. Listen. They would pray, My father was a wandering Aramean, that was Abraham. And he went down into Egypt with a few people, and he lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery and our toil and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. That's what they would pray. And, and so you can see that giving God the first tenth was, was a way of remembering God's salvation. It was a way of acknowledging God's blessing. And it was a way of giving thanks to God for being so faithful. By the way, we should realize that the actual percentage of yearly harvest and, and income that God's people gave to God exceeded 10% in reality. For one thing, they gave their first fruits in Jerusalem, and, and so they had to travel there with all of their goods three times a year. There were travel costs, there were shipping costs, there was food and lodging for the journey and for their stay in Jerusalem. Second, there were other offerings that they'd give to God when they were in Jerusalem. There were sin offerings, there were burnt offerings, there were fellowship offerings, there were thanksgiving offerings. And some of these were burned on the altar. Others were given to the priests so that their family could be, families could be provided for. And still others were shared and eaten by the worshipers as they worshipped and celebrated God. And, and all of these offerings were paid in grain and oil, in sheep and in goats, which in that culture at that time was the wealth that they had and that they depended on to live. Today, it would be cash, real estate, stocks, and bonds, that kinds of things. Back then, it was grain, sheep, goats. George Malone, in his book, uh, Furnace of Renewal, writes that, um, or he writes this about the, the percents that God's people actually gave back then. He says, it is much more accurate to say that Israel gave one-fifth to one-fourth rather than one-tenth of its resources to God. So keep that in mind as we go on, that when I say a tenth, I mean at least a tenth, referring to the way it worked in Scripture. So what was the purpose of the tenth, of the tithe? 
Well, three things. It, it made public worship possible. It provided for those who devoted themselves to the work of God full-time, priests and Levites. And it enabled the community to care for the poor and the needy, for orphans and widows and immigrants. Now, what's important to observe about the biblical practice is that the tithe was actually handed to the Levitical priests who were responsible to put it to use for the purposes that God outlined. So someone might have argued to Malachi that by not paying the whole tithe, they were not um, robbing God. Uh, th- th- sorry, they were not um, robbing... Uh, l- let me say that again. <laughs> someone might have argued that they were not... Um, or that by not paying the whole tithe, the people were only robbing the temple. They were only robbing the priests. They were, by extension, only robbing the poor and the needy. They might have argued that. But no, God says, you are robbing me. When you don't provide for my worship, when you don't provide for my servants, when you don't provide for the poor and for the needy, you are robbing me, says the Lord. Also notice how Malachi puts this. He says, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you. You are robbing me. The whole nation of you. Nation here in the Hebrew is the word normally used for the unbelieving heathen Gentiles, the goyim. The the point God is making by calling his own people the goyim is a devastating point. He's saying by withholding the whole tithe, God's tithe, his people were acting as unbelievers and not as his covenant people. Return to me, God says. How, they ask. Stop robbing me. Bring in the whole tithe. But times were hard. We can understand the temptation to hold back the giving, the giving of the whole tithe. The people were, were likely afraid that, that if they gave the whole tithe, they would not be able to meet their other needs and obligations. And I understand that fear. Several times in my life, I have not known where money was going to come from to pay next month's bills. When I was a missionary, uh, living on the donations of others, for example. And uh, when I was unemployed, looking for work, which has happened to me several times. Or even now, as Josiah is in 10th grade and college is just around the corner. You've seen tuition prices lately, right? (laughs) Believe me, I know the temptation to withhold what belongs to God. I can understand the people of Malachi's day keeping God's 10% for themselves. Yet even in those hard times of, of drought and famine, of rising interest rates and military threats, God challenges his people, return to me and I will return to you. How? The first 10% is not yours, remember? Stop robbing me. Bring in the whole tithe. Why? Why this connection between returning to God and the tithe? Clearly, it is not saying that we buy our way into a relationship with God. What a perversion of the gospel that would be. Then, what is the connection Why does God even bring up the matter of money when speaking of our relationship with him? Why? Well, because more than anything else, what we do with our money reveals our priorities and values, our loves and desires, our allegiances, and our sense of security and where we put our security. Right? 
What we do with our money reveals what we really believe in. Someone once said, if you want to know what the people really believe uh, about what they're singing and saying in the worship service, take a look at their bank statements and you'll see what they really believe. Return to me, says the Lord. How? Stop robbing me. Robbing you? How are we robbing you? The first 10% is mine, not yours, remember? Stop robbing me and bring in the whole tithe. Then God declares the good news. The good news that changes the whole picture. God speaks to our fear, to the fear that if you or I, uh, who are already financially tight, give God his 10%, we'll not be able to make it on the 90% that's left. Let me say that again. God speaks to our fear, to the fear that if or when you or I are already financially tight and we give God his 10%, we will not be able to make it on the other 90%. God says to us, test me in this. Test me in this. This is the only time in the Bible that God invites us to test him. Test me in this, he offers. And then he makes two wonderful promises. Two, not just one. And it's these combination of of promises which constitute God's good news for financial stress. The first promise. Test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Test me. Do what I tell you to do. Bring in the whole tithe and see how generous I can be to you. Do you see how God's speaking to our fear? The fear that we will not be able to make it on the 90%. God's promise is you will not be living on 90%. Bring in the whole tithe and you will have more than not just 90%. You will be living on the extra blessings I will pour out on you. You will have at your disposal more than what you are trying to keep. I can tell you I have been following Jesus for almost 30 years now. And I've been around church people my whole life. And I have never met nor heard a story about a believer who proved God to be a liar in this. I have never met nor heard a story of someone who walked closely with Jesus and faithfully tithed and wound up going without the necessities of life. Yet I and others in this room could tell you story after story of how they and others they know gave generously, trusted God with their finances, and how God provided, sometimes in surprising ways. I could also tell you story after story of those who give generously and their lives are full of blessing, full of God's joy and peace and hope and direction and purpose. Test me in this, God says. Bring in the whole tithe and see if I do not take care of your needs in abundant and maybe surprising ways. And then here's the second promise. Test me in this, bring in the whole tithe, listen, and then I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines of your field will not drop their fruit before it's, white, before it's ripe. See how this also addresses our fear? The, the fact is, when, when we're withholding the, the whole tithe, we do not then have at our disposal nine, 
or 98% or 95% or however much we're keeping for ourselves, in the mystery of things, we end up having much less than 90%. Why? Because of the devourer. Literally, verse 11 begins, I will rebuke the devourer for you, says the Lord. I will rebuke the devourer. What's the devourer? Well, some think that it's the locusts who periodically plagued the farmers and devoured their crops. Others think it refers to pests and pestilences in general. But, but the point is here that, that there is a devourer in the world which can eat up what we work so hard for. Whether it's famine and crop failure, whether it's a car accident or a house fair, fail, uh, fire that we weren't adequately insured for, whether it's a leaky roof or a broken furnace or a lost iPhone that we hadn't budgeted for. Yeah, some of you are laughing. You're like, yeah, I dropped my iPhone and broke it and, or my kid lost it. Um, or, or whether it's declining housing values or, or rising costs of living. Or whether it's high interest rates on, on that credit card balance that we can't seem to pay off. Or, or it's our own appetites for the things we don't really need. Maybe it's that cute outfit that we don't really need and probably will seldom wear. Or, or that new car when the one we have is just fine. Or, or that lottery ticket or that pack of cigarettes that we really can't afford. When we worship stuff, when we worship possessions, mammon as the Bible puts it, it devours what we have. It creates appetites for things we don't need. It causes us to fritter away our resources on the non-essentials. God's promise is here that if we bring in the whole tithe, the 90% that we have left will be protected from the devourer. The remaining 90% will not be eaten up. And, and God begins to do a deep work in us at this point, freeing us from greed and from lust and from gluttony and from materialism. God goes deep and changes our sense of identity from consumer to steward. So God gives us a twofold promise. I will throw open the floodgates and I will rebuke the devourer. And the 90% ends up going further than the 100% we had wanted to keep. Bring in the whole tithe, God says, and watch me transform your finances. Now at this point, some could raise an objection. They could, they could point out that nowhere in the New Testament do we find a command to tithe or to give the first 10%. And that's right. The question is then, Why? Well, I think two reasons. First, the New Testament authors assumed it. See Luke eleven forty two, for example. And second, in light of God's amazing love in Jesus Christ, the call is no longer some, 10 or 20%. The call is all, 100%. Jesus has a way of upping the ante, doesn't he? <laughs> Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, says the Apostle Paul. How can we present our bodies without presenting our paychecks? The New Testament calls us to give all that we are and have. All Jesus Christ asks of us now is all. That's all. <laughs> the New Testament goal is to employ everything we have creatively for Jesus and for his kingdom. And bringing in the whole tithe is a good way to get started. So in the New Testament, the tithe is not the goal. 
It's the starting place. The goal is all we have, all we are. Will a human being rob God? Unthinkable. Yet you are robbing me, says the Lord. How? In tithes and offerings. Bring in the whole tithe and watch what I will do. Some statistics as we close. According to a 2014 article last year in Relevant Magazine, which was entitled, What Would Happen If the Church Tithed? We find out that in 1933, at the worst point in the Great Depression, the average giving of Christians in North America was 3.3%. Today, though Americans are exceedingly more wealthy uh, than they were during the Depression, the average giving of Christians now is less than 2.5%. According to George Barna in a study uh, back in the year 2000, of those born-again Christians, that's who he was surveying, who earned $75,000 to $100,000 a year, only 1% tithe. Meanwhile, of those who earn less than $20,000 a year, 8% tithe. Interesting. You'd think it would be the other way around, but George Barna writes, in general, the more money a person makes the less likely he or she is to tithe. That money has a way of sticking to us. Let me ask you a question. If every committed Christian in America were to give a full 10%, how much money would be available for ministry? If every committed Christian in North America were to give the whole tithe, how much money would be available for ministry? Any guesses? A lot. (laughs) Some. Well, I have seen figures ranging anywhere from 46 to $165 billion, depending on how you define committed Christian and what year you're looking at. But let's be conservative and say just $46 billion, okay? Small number. And this isn't money, remember, that people are already giving. This is additional money. Can you imagine the new ministry that could happen with that additional $46 billion a year. Get this, $25 billion would relieve global hunger, starvation, and deaths from preventable diseases in five years. $15 billion would solve the world's water and sanitation issues, specifically in places in the world where 1 billion people live on less than a dollar a day. $1 billion would fully fund all overseas missions work, and that still leaves $5 billion. Anyone got any ideas what we could do with an extra $5 billion? (laughs) You can see then that that lack of money is not the obstacle to accomplishing the mission of Jesus Christ in our time. Lack of money is never the obstacle. God has prepared the body of Christ, provided the body of Christ with all the money needed, just as God has poured out all the gifts of the Holy Spirit needed. The problem is not lack of funds, The problem is lack of faith. Lack of trust in in the one who cares about our finances is where the problem lies. Lack of confidence in the one who turned 120 gallons of water into the finest wine. Lack of confidence in the one who takes five loaves of bread and two fish and feeds 5,000 people with 12 baskets of leftovers left over. Trust me, says the Lord. Bring in the whole tithe, says the Lord. Stop robbing me and watch me open the windows of heaven. Watch me stop the devourer from robbing you too. That's what this passage seems to be saying. 
Let's respond in worship.